wonderful opportunity for self-evaluation and deeper contemplation. You have time to spare. And as you sit there observing the other inmates, you ponder many things. Why are these people here? Are they career criminals or is, is this, did they just have a bad night? Do they have a good reason for being here? One of my friends actually was falsely charged, but we were uh, marveling together the fact that every other man in that jail would claim to be innocent. On the surface, how could you tell? We wouldn't want to presume that simply because they were in jail, they were guilty. Nor would we want to say that the guys with the tattoos or the guys with long hair, those are the guilty ones. No, we wouldn't want to assign guilt on the basis of appearance. Besides, they all wore orange jumpsuits, so they all looked about the same anyway. But it made me think of of my standing before the eternal judge, the God of all mankind. It made me think of my church. Just as in jail, if we were to ask everybody here, everyone would claim to be a good guy. Most people here would claim to be Christian. How could you tell? Just because someone is in church, does that mean that they belong to God? I hope we wouldn't say that. But neither would we want to say that the guys in ties or the clean-shaven ones, that those belong to God. No, that would be ridiculous. We do not want to assign righteousness on the basis of outward appearance. What makes this particularly troubling when I think of jail is that many of those guys were there the first time. Perhaps they had normal jobs. Perhaps they had a lovely family, went to church, but just had a bad night. Something went wrong. Does that one wrong move label them forever as a criminal? If you have read or seen Les Mis, you'll remember Jean Valjean stole a loaf of bread and spent the rest of his life running as a criminal. Is that just? On the flip side, here in church, there might be a few people out there who are quite corrupt. Haven't been caught yet. Maybe in a moment of panic, someone asks Jesus to come into their heart and and then decides, well, I'll go to church. Should that one person be called a Christian based on one decision? And to make it more troubling, when I look at my life, there's times when I don't look so pretty. Maybe you can relate. There are times when I sin. There are times where you could stand me next to another non-Christian and you may not be able to tell much of a difference between us. This, friends, should not be. But in those times, what distinguishes me from anyone else? When you struggle with sin, or when you struggle in general, what distinguishes you 
from the rest of the world. David speaks to this concern in Psalm 28, which you will find on page 865 in your pew Bible. Now, this is a psalm of David, the greatest king that the nation of Israel ever had. But David was more than simply a king. David was a prophet. And David was a poet. And David was known as a man after God's own heart. In this psalm, we get a glimpse of what it means to be a man or a woman who is after God's heart. Now, we don't know the specific situation that David was going through. On the surface, it looks like he might have entered into an agreement or contract with some other people who turned out to be deceitful. The specifics aren't clear. So it's helpful to remember that the Psalms in general are the hymnal for the nation. They're the corporate worship book. So David's specific situations are often written in general sense, so it could apply to any one of God's people in a variety of situations. So regardless of the specific details, there's deeper theological truths which David thinks that his people need to know as they approach God. And David is setting a model or an example for his people to follow as they worship God. And the central idea is quite simple. A Christian is someone who hears the voice of God and cries out for mercy. Let's read Psalm 28 together. Of David, to you I call, O Lord, my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for the deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve. Since they showed no regard for the works of the Lord and what His hands have done, He will tear them down and never build them up again. Praise be to the Lord, for He has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to Him in song. The Lord is the strength of His people, a fortress of salvation for His anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. We can divide this psalm into three sections. First, David cries out to the God who speaks. Verses 1 and 2. Second, David shuns those who ignore God. This is 3 through 5. And then 6 through 9, God responds with eternal protection. That's your outline. The first point will uh, probably be the longest. David cries out to the God who speaks. Look at verse 1. To you I call, O Lord, my rock. Do not turn a deaf ear to me. For if you remain silent, I will be like those who have gone down to the pit. David is afraid that God might remain silent, which indicates that 
there has been a separation for a little while. And David is a child of God, a child who is not hearing from God and who fears that God is not hearing him. And you will know the ache of this feeling when you have someone that you love that you're you're separated from. I know on the, the rare moments when my wife and I are not getting along that I ache inside. I feel cold and dead like, like nothing else really matters. How much more if the God who loves us is estranged from us, the God who has made us to know him and fellowship with him, how much more would we feel at loss? Now, this is poetry. So David has, has license to exaggerate in order to, to stir up our emotions. But when he says that he doesn't want to be like those who go down to the pit, he is saying something that is very real. He is confessing something that is true. This word pit is alluding to the Hebrew concept of the grave. And so what David is saying is that God's silence will lead to his death. How can this be? Well, you will readily remember that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And then God spoke, let there be light. And there was light. God said, let there be stars and planets and trees and animals and fish. And all of creation came into being because of the voice of God. But he didn't just create it and walk away like he's done. No, in Hebrews 1, it says that Christ sustains all things by his powerful word. So the physical world that we see today that we live in, it continues to exist and thrive because of the voice of God. And what is true for the physical world is that much more true for our spiritual world. Peter says to the Christian, you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So how true is this? How essential is God's word to his people? When our Savior walked this earth, when he was tempted by the devil, he clung to his Bible and said, man will not live on bread alone, but on every word. That comes from the mouth of the Lord. So if this is true for Jesus, if this is true for King David, would this not be true for every one of us that our most desperate need is the voice of God? So David is right to cry out, God, if you remain silent, I will die. And last week, you will remember that Michael said, in the ending of the series on liberation theology, the people were at the mountain and God came down on the mountain and it rumbled and there was earthquakes and lightning and everything, but none of that represented the presence of God. What The revelation of the presence of God was in His voice. God's presence among us is revealed in His voice. So if we close our ears... To the voice of God, we cut off our very source of life. We will die if God stops speaking. And eternal life fundamentally can be described as a right relationship with the eternal God. And 
what relationship exists without communication, hearing and speaking back and forth, growing in knowledge and love of the person that we relate to. So David's assertion here, even though he's established as the king of the nation of Israel, is that his life, his relationship with God, is maintained through a continual pursuit of God, through listening and through speaking. And we know, brothers and sisters, that most clearly and most definitely, God speaks through His Word, the Bible. That is why our services here are saturated with Scripture from beginning to end. We want the entire service to breathe life. And our church has been given a very special gift in that we have a pastor who is an excellent preacher. But we don't come here to hear an excellent preacher. We come here to hear the voice of God. Anytime the Word is faithfully and accurately proclaimed from this pulpit, we have the opportunity to hear from God. So we must treat this as a precious gift. We should strive to be here whenever God is speaking, whether it's through Michael in the morning or through another brother in the evening. Our regular pursuit of God through listening to His Word, both privately and publicly, shows that we long to hear from Him. Now we see in this passage that the king of Israel is troubled because he's not hearing from God, even though he's king. And this is a challenging thought that the child of God could actually be in a position where God's voice is distant. So when David cries out for mercy, what he's communicating is that the life-sustaining voice of God is not an entitlement that he can demand. God is not obligated to speak to us. And when he does speak, it's his gracious gift of life for those who listen. Now, you'll notice in verse 1 the parallel structure, the relationship between God's deaf ear and his silent voice. So it is possible that when David refers to God's silence, he's thinking of unanswered prayer. I've been talking, I've been talking, and God is not responding to me. We, we're not sure why that would be. It could be because of David's sin. I mean, imagine that if the relationship is broken, if, if I am not listening to God's voice, why would I presume that God would listen to me when I cry out to him. Our disobedience can lead to God's silence. There could be other reasons for this silence that only God knows. There are times when God is silent just so we can exercise our faith in him. He chooses to delay his response. And we can see in verse 2 that David does have faith and he has a basis for his faith. So look at verse 2. Hear my cry for mercy as I call to you for help, as I lift up my hands towards your most holy place. So even in the midst of God's troubling silence, David's cry is not in desperate doubt, but in earnest faith. Because David's cries are directed to a specific location, to the most holy place. Now inside the tabernacle was the Holy of Holies. 
the most special place in all of the world because within that Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very dwelling place of God among people. So how could God dwell within a rebellious people who were so prone to stop listening to him? Once a year, the people would celebrate Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. The high priest would approach the inner sanctuary of God and sprinkle blood from a sacrificed animal on the mercy seat, which was the top cover of the Ark of the Covenant. This was to signify that no one may approach God without a sacrifice of blood to atone for their sins. So David did not find access to God because he was king. Nor did he find access to God because he had his act together. David found access to God because he had a mediator who offered a sacrifice to cover the sins of Israel. So David's cry for mercy was not a presumptuous claim on his rights, nor was it a cry of someone who's in doubt or someone who's lost something. David's cry as a child who's troubled but persistent. David may be broken, he may be distant, but he is confident because God has provided a solution. The substitute of a blood sacrifice. This was David's access to God. And brothers and sisters, this is our access to God. A mediator that brings a blood sacrifice. That's the basis for our ability to approach God. And I'll explain this a little more fully, but let me talk for a couple of minutes about about what this is saying to our church family. David, as the representative of God's people, is shown here as someone who is dependent, who cries out to God for mercy. In our lives, this attitude can be very challenging, but it also can be very refreshing. If someone were to observe us, would they be able to see that we are dependent on God? What would that look like? Well, first of all, and perhaps most importantly, it would mean that our lives would be saturated with prayer. Regularly, continually, publicly, and privately. And as you know, we spend a good portion of our service every Sunday praying regularly to God in a variety of ways because the life of our church is dependent on God's mercy towards us. So we don't live and succeed as a church because we set up great programs or because we've hired the best leaders. No, we live and succeed as a church because God is merciful and we want to be continually crying out to God for his mercy. On a private note, when I pray, my mind is easily distracted, easily wander. And so uh, just in very practical terms, what you can see here is, is a model, even a, a pattern of what to pray about. So if you remember just the, the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, you can see all of that in Psalm 28. You can see the adoration of God where we Praise God for all of his wonderful characteristics. You can see confession where we cry out in need, telling God our weakness, confessing that we're sinful. You can see thanksgiving 
where we are confident that God hears us and that He replies and that He is a God who delights to give good gifts to His children. And you see supplication where we bring our requests, every concern of our heart we can lay before Him. So sometimes if you want to pray on your own and you feel a little distracted, just remember, structure is your friend. It's good to have a shape to pray through. It'll build you so that you'll pray more in accordance with God's will. On another level, personally, in my life, dependence on God would mean that God's beauty would be maximized. But it would also mean that my frailty would be known. My weakness would be known. Now, and this would require vulnerability, and I know in church, this can be a very difficult proposition, because in church, we collectively pursue a holy and pure God, and we know God has a very high standard, but if we're honest, we don't meet God's perfect standard. If we read our Bibles well, we will often be convicted and exposed as deficient, as sinful. And we are tempted to pretend. We are tempted to speak cordially with our neighbor while we hide sin in our heart. And this is the wrong response. This is why we need to be reminded continually of the gospel that God did not choose us because we met certain standards. God chose us because we can't meet standards, but Christ has met standards. Every requirement of God. And when we understand this, we're free to let down our guard. We can demonstrate our dependency of God, on God when we're vulnerable with each other. When we're willing to admit that we struggle with sin or with fear or with doubt. We are a community who exists only because of God's mercy. And so we want to be a community that extends mercy when we see others struggling. Now, this doesn't mean that we overlook sin or ignore sin because that would be ignoring God's voice. But we are patient and supportive. We are fighting together to represent God well. And relying on God's people demonstrates that you are dependent on God's mercy. Let me say a word to my brothers and sisters who have been faithful to God for many, many years. We admire your faithfulness. We look up to you. And you can see here what David is doing as the leader of the people of Israel is he is presenting a model for the people to follow, a model of dependence on God. David was not a leader because he was the tallest or the best looking. He was the runt of his litter. David was the leader because he was a man after God's own heart. And this is how he expresses his heart after God by crying out independence. So you have an opportunity to be patient and to minister to so many younger people who are coming now to our church. We need godly models that will show us what it's like to depend on God year after year, to go through struggles. We need to understand how you remain faithful and how God showed His faithfulness. Because, my goodness... We're all struggling. 
You know, a number of, uh, a couple of years ago, my dad died from Parkinson's disease. And my mom, who is a small woman, uh, cared for him for several years uh, as his condition declined. And this uh, became very taxing for her emotionally and physically. Um, she's a very strong, independent woman. But she was brought to a point where she needed help. As much as she tried to care for him, as much as she loved him as faithful as she could, she needed help. And she reached out to her church and her family. And her church was wonderful in the way that they embraced her, they lifted her up, they supported her, they visited her, they took care of her physical needs. And even as a widow, they still continue to do that. And it did two things. On one level, for the people of the church, they had a beautiful picture of faithful love at the end of life. And it was a wonderful model for the whole congregation. On another level, my mom knew the mercy of God when God's people were regularly caring for her. So let me just encourage you in your struggles that the purpose of the community that God has brought us together so that we can demonstrate God's mercy on each other. We can be God's hands that care for each other. If you're a parent, your children need to see that you are regularly dependent on God's mercy. And you show this when you pray with them regularly. And you also show this when you admit that you are wrong. And for me, I have a tendency to to overreact to get angry with my children. And so I have plenty of opportunities where I can tell my children about my desperate need of Christ when I come back to them and say, you know what, I didn't, I didn't demonstrate the gentleness and patience of God the way that, that I should. And so my willingness to ask them to forgive me hopefully sets a model for them that this is how we live and breathe and survive is in our regular dependence on a merciful God. Well, David's prayer is not complete. So the second point begins in verse 3. David shuns those who ignore God. Verse 3 says, Do not drag me away with the wicked, with those who do evil, who speak cordially with their neighbors, but harbor malice in their hearts. Repay them for the deeds and for their evil work. Repay them for what their hands have done and bring back upon them what they deserve. Since they show no no regard for the works of the Lord and what His hands have done, He will tear them down and never build them up again. Wow. Some commentators feel that David entered into a, a contract or a covenant with some other men. And these other men turned out to be, to be deceitful. And so this prayer would be a cry of protection concerning those deceivers. And it may be troubling to read something like this in your Bible. It sounds very unchristian to call for judgment on another person. So I think the best way to understand this is thinking through it in two ways. One is in terms of its literary genre, and another way in terms of its, its theological lesson or weight. But in terms of genre, this is called an imprecatory psalm. 
It's pleading for God to judge the wicked. And David is speaking as a representative of the entire nation. Asking God to remember his covenant. Last week, you will remember that Michael explained the covenant from Exodus 19. God saved the people of Israel out from Egypt. And then he entered into a covenant with him where he says, I will protect you and you will obey me. If you were to keep reading through into the end of Leviticus and the end of Deuteronomy, you will find that the covenant is rounded out with a series of blessings for the faithful and cursings for the wicked. And this is actually just standard covenant terminology in that day. And so what David is doing here is he is just asking God to fulfill his covenant commitment to his people. To deal with those who disregard the covenant or harm God's people. And so it's a reminder to each of us that God fulfills every promise. So the theological point comes as a prophetic warning. God promised Adam from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 2, if you sin, if you ignore my voice, you will die. And so what David is articulating here is that every sin requires an appropriate response from God. This is true for every person. This is true for every sin. So when we see David with this type of heavy prayer, we should not think that David is being grumpy, but we should think that this is where we stand, each one of us, for we all sin. So we should notice that the threat here does not come from David's opponents. The threat comes from God. Though his opponents are full of malice and pursuing evil work, the king of Israel pleads with God, do not drag me away with the wicked. Because David recognizes that the distance between him and his enemy is not that great in God's eyes. That is why we need mercy. In fact, on the surface, if you look at this, the deceivers don't look so bad. It says that they speak cordially with their neighbors. That word cordially is shalom. It's covenant peace. So this could refer to the individual contract or it could refer to the national covenant that God made with his people. These deceivers are speaking that language. They sound like anyone else in church. God bless you. I'm praying for you. Praise the Lord. They speak peace. So how do we identify the deceiver? They won't stand out in a lineup. You could say that it's their evil works. There's a evil works mentioned here. But you'll notice that David doesn't actually specify what those evil, evil works are. We don't know the nature of the malice. We don't know what their hands have done. So rather than guess, we should look at what David focuses on in verse 5. Since they showed no regard for the works of the Lord and what his hands have done, he will tear them down and never build them up again. The evil works of the deceivers find their root in this. They ignore the works of God. God's deeds are simply his character, his nature demonstrated in time and space. And there's no, there's no deception with God. So whatever God does is just a reflection of who God is. When God destroyed Egypt through the plagues, he was making a statement. He was demonstrating that he is a God, the one God in all the universe, worthy of worship. And Pharaoh showed no regard for this. 
And it was his demise. His house was torn down. As God led the Israelites through the Red Sea, he demonstrated that he is the one who is able to save his people from every enemy, even the greatest army on earth. David's opponents should have known this, that the covenant was born out of judgment, that God's people are saved when God's enemies are destroyed. It is perilous to do wrong to God's people. But David's opponents showed no regard. And there is a greater work, brothers and sisters, which all of these other works point to, which they help us understand. The sacrifice of blood that was David's basis for approach to God was pointing to a greater future fulfillment, a future sacrifice when God's own son, his fullest revelation of himself, took on flesh and walked on this earth. He perfectly represented what God was like and the people that he approached showed malice to him. They did the worst evil work that they could contrive when they killed Jesus Christ on the cross. But this was God's design that through his death, all of the sin for all of God's children could be placed on him so that he could extend mercy to us. So God conquered our greatest enemy, the sin which separates us from him by punishing Christ in our place. So his death was the end of God's wrath for those who would regard his great work and lift their hands to the most holy place, the cross. And David's concern about being dragged away with the wicked is true for all of us. For we all stand wicked before a holy God. We all wear orange jumpsuits. But before the judge of the universe, we all would stand condemned. The only clear difference between God's people and God's enemies are this. God's enemies ignore the works of God. While God's children hear God's voice and plead for mercy on the basis of the greatest work that he has accomplished through Jesus Christ. This is repentance and faith. So if you do not have a deep commitment with knowing God, then you need to think carefully about this. Because Christianity is not a one-time entrance fee. It is a lifelong pursuit. Young people, Christianity is not a family that you were born into. Your, your parents may be Christians, and you may go to church every single Sunday, but if you ignore God the rest of the week, then you are deceiving yourself. If you do not know God, and you have heard me explain the great work that he has accomplished through Christ, and you walk away unchanged, then you are disregarding the greatest work that he has ever done. And it will be your ruin. So I beg you, please don't leave today if you do not know where you stand. Now, I'm not saying that the believer's salvation is insecure. What I am saying is that the believer's life is characterized by daily dependence on the mercy of God. We are not presumptuous, as in to demand that God forgives us because that's his job. Nor are we doubtful, as if perhaps Christ's sacrifice was not enough. But if we hear God's voice, then our sin will be exposed, and we are left with a choice. Will we ignore God 
Or will we repent and seek the forgiveness that He graciously provides? Your choice to that will help confirm your destiny. Let's jump back in the text to the final point, beginning in verse 6. The psalm begins with an urgent cry for mercy, but it ends with confident praise. And so the final point is God responds with eternal protection. Verse 6, Praise be to the Lord, for He has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him, and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy, and I will give thanks to Him in song. The Lord is the strength of His people, a fortress of salvation for His anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. It may seem that a position of dependence is a gloomy one, but we see here great joy and thankfulness. And I think that in our culture of of independence, where many of us have been hurt by broken promises, we feel secure in our autonomy. If I can get all my ducks in a row, if, if I can control my situation, well then I'll have peace. I'll be secure. But David finds solace in the comfort in the Lord. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. My heart leaps for joy and I will give thanks to Him in song. This is the response of a believer who understands God's character, who understands that God fulfills every promise. God is our shield of protection. So how can David be so confident in this very same psalm he starts with a cry for mercy and he, he jumps for joy with great thankfulness. Well, David's been reading his Bible. David understands what God's character is like. If Michael had continued preaching through Exodus, we would see the people of Israel waiting at the foot of the mountain while Moses tarries up with the Lord. And what do the people of Israel do? They reject God there at the foot of the mountain and turn their back and make a golden calf and begin worshiping the golden calf. And in the face of this defiance, God reveals Himself to Moses. And God says something about His own character. In Exodus 34, He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The guilty are those who do not repent, who do not turn to God for mercy on the basis of the sacrifice. Those who hold on to their sin. But God's mercy, God's forgiveness is eternal and endless for those who cry out to him because God's children are his treasured possession. and He delights in showing mercy to his children. In David's own life, if you know his story, you know that he sinned and you know that he experienced God's mercy in his sin. And brothers and sisters, we know that because Jesus Christ died on the cross, that God is looking for opportunities to show mercy to his children who cry out for him. So David's confidence is based on his understanding of God's character. Do you know God in this way? 
Do you recognize him as a God who delights in forgiving his children? Notice in the last two verses, the psalm expands to include the entire nation. And this is common. This is a worship book for the entire community. But there is something else going on here. David is a model for his people. And the common pattern throughout the Bible is this. As the king goes, so goes the people. If the king is righteous, the people will follow in righteousness. If the king is wicked, the people will follow in wickedness. So here we see in verse 8, the Lord is the strength of his people, the nation, plural. And he's a fortress of salvation for his anointed one, singular. So as David pleads for mercy to God and cries out to God, God shows mercy on David and the whole nation is blessed. David being God's anointed one. But that Hebrew word for anointed one is the word that we get Messiah from. And so it's not only pointing to David, the chosen king of that time, but it's pointing to David's greater son, Jesus Christ, our eternal king. How is God a fortress of salvation for our Messiah? Jesus didn't stay on the cross. Jesus didn't stay dead in the tomb. God raised Jesus up from the dead and placed him in the highest position of authority so that everyone who cries out to his name, everyone that identifies with him and claims him as the eternal kingdom, king will have this promise that God is their shepherd and will carry them forever. So God is creating an eternal community of people who will live forever in joyful dependence on our great God. So we have a glorious future. So as you sit here in church, the question remains, how can you be sure that you belong? It's not going to be from your outward appearance. It's going to be because of your cry for mercy, because of your daily dependence on the work of Jesus Christ, the eternal King. He is faithful, and he will carry you through. Will you pray with me? A great God, it is, it is a marvel that you condescend to speak to us, that you reveal yourself to us in such wonderful ways. And you give us the opportunity to respond, to hear your voice, and to come to you knowing that you will not turn away anyone who comes to you in faith. So I pray that we would be encouraged and that we would be challenged to cling to you more faithfully because you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.